Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast from the home of the world champion Houston Astros right there, baby. And as always, I'm joined midweek by co-host Sean Bajani with Sports Radio 610. Between the two of us, 45 years combined in sports journalism, 35 years covering Houston sports. So you're in good hands. And Sean, since our last show, or since our show last week, I should say, Crane and Click parted ways, and the Astros signed Rafael Montero, a 32-year-old reliever with only one good year under his belt, to a three-year, $32 million contract. Not exactly, Sean, your typical Astros contract. It was at 32 or 34.5. Yeah. I think it was the, the average annual value is kind of what, you know, I was, I was looking at. And, you know, after seeing those numbers, I was like, ah, man, I don't know. But I tell you what, you know, I'm not going to put anything beyond like what this Astros pitching staff and this the analytics department have done in terms of identifying talent. And if you're going to trust them to identify talent and bring them in, then darn it, you better trust them to keep the talent. And, you know, good pitching and great pitching, really, um, it costs you. And so at the end of the day, if it's not going to hamstring you to sign, you know, other need positions, whether it be catcher, first base, center field, your ace, and Justin Verlander, which, you know, I, I don't know if that's going to happen anyway, but I know we'll get to that, um, then I'm fine with it um, because Montero was great. And we don't know what happened with Stanek, but that Neris, Montero, Presley, a brave look that we saw out of the pen, especially in the back half of these playoff games, I mean, it was fantastic. So I'm, I'm absolutely fine with it. Speaking of analytics, and you talk about the Astros analytics department, there might be a little battle going on between analytics and old baseball guys. And from reports that I've read, Dusty Baker said he had to battle Astros analytics people to bat Jeremy Pena in the two-hole ahead of Jordan Alvarez. Dusty also fought the analytics people over Maldonado. He wanted Maldi to catch the top three pitchers. This was according to conversations Turner sports broadcaster Brian Anderson had with Dusty. And apparently, Dusty said, quote, everything was a debate, unquote. And so, Sean, it's interesting that Crane, who built the championships off Luno's back, is rumored to want a better balance of more old school baseball guys with the analytic guys. And Crane is taking a lot of input from Jeff Bagwell. And Reggie Jackson, what do you think about that? Boy, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, first off, I want to know what the analytics were saying in terms of the numbers forecasted for Jeremy Pena to bat anywhere else because we know the numbers of him batting in the two-hole, and they were fantastic, especially looking the win-loss column, which at the end of the day is all that matters. Uh, not only was he producing, but the Astros were winning a ton of games. I think the last time that I looked, postseason not included, they were 42 and seven with him in the two hole case closed. Shut up. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, I really want to know what those numbers said outside of that and where it recommended you bat him. Uh, hopefully it wasn't seventh uh, because you know, the Astros, they're going to get better down there next year. There's no doubt about it. I don't know exactly how or whom's going to be involved there, but it can't be much worse than it was. But in terms of Bagwell and Reggie Jackson, um, having Jim Crane's ear a little bit more these days. I feel like that's something that has really been there since, you know, Crane took over 
and bought this team from Drayton McLean. You know, we hear little rumblings here and there. And I know Jackson, you know, is fairly new to the Astros just coming aboard over the course of the last couple of years. But Jeff Bagwell's kind of been there. Craig Biggio's been there. And I've always been more surprised to hear Bagwell's name more than that of Biggio. I thought at first, you know, maybe we're hearing Bagwell's name more. Maybe they're involving him a little bit more because they knew that he was having some personal struggles being away from baseball and things like that. There's certainly plenty of demons that Jeff Bagwell's battled over the course of the uh, years since he's been retired. Um, but maybe he's beyond that now. And I think he's been pretty sober, you know, um, over the course of the last couple of three years, maybe even longer than that. I think maybe um, right after he went into Cooperstown, what was it, 2017, I believe it was. Um, you know, Jim Crane. He seems like he's a hard guy to um, earn trust with, but experience and I think reputation for being a great baseball guy, a great baseball mind, um, you should be listening to Jeff Bagwell. Um, The thing about Jeff Bagwell that to me is key is he's somebody, if you listen to him on the broadcast, because he's been on a lot of Astros broadcasts, I feel like he's open to the analytics, but he was a great instinctual baseball player. We know his base running. He's as good as it gets when it comes to instincts. He was a good batting coach. The Astros, people might remember this, had him helping out with hitters, and guys seemed to improve when he was doing that. He just didn't feel like putting in the effort. And like you said, there were some other issues potentially going on at the same time. And maybe right after he was done, he wasn't ready to jump back into baseball. He has a family and all of that. However, like, I don't know about Reggie, but Jeff Bagwell, somebody that I trust. And I don't think he's this guy that's going to just, all right, let's get rid of all of it. I, I feel like with Jim Crane, you know, Jim Crane's a baseball guy. We forget this. He played. <laughs> you know, yeah. Th- this is this is something that I think people forget. So I, I I just feel like, you know, as much as my eyes are raised, my eyebrows are raised a little bit on this. I like Jeff Bagwell being involved because I think he knows what he's doing. I do too. And look, he's smart enough to understand that there's room in every facet of life for analytics and data, and to make you better at what you do, to make us better at what we do, to make players better. It's just. It's simple. I mean, it's it. You don't have to be a genius at all. Um, what what old school minds I think just fail to realize with well, rather what analytics people fail to realize. What I want to say is watching and observing and um, I, I I think understanding what a guy's going through at a particular point in time. It can't take into account health. All right. For one, um, I, I think, for instance, let me put it to you this way. Very simple. Analytics tell you that um, Yuli Gurriel is supposed to be, you know, here. OK, he's supposed to be a 280 hitter average. Right. But the guy's an over 30 slump. So analytics tells you he's a 280 hitter, but he's over 30. Well, what does that guy have to do beyond over 30 to reach 280? He's got to go on a massive tear, right? Okay. Well, if you're Dusty Baker, if you're Joe Espada, and if you're 
uh, Troy Snitker, and you're seeing this guy in the cages every day, and he is just not getting it, man. And 0 for 30 looks like it might turn into 0 for 50. you got to make a change. But analytics will tell you, no, he's going to come around. I mean, he's he's this kind of hitter. It, it can break any day. Keep trotting him out there. Keep trotting him out there. But when he's costing you games at the plate versus in the field, then there's something you have to do. And, yeah, sure, he might go on a, you know, 30 for 60 run, you know, after he goes over 50. But it might be over 70. You know what I'm saying? And you just have to be able to feel that out and see and understand what he's doing, how he's going every single day and make certain calls. And I think Jeff Bangle is smart enough to know that. Reggie Jackson's smart enough to know that. They wouldn't have the ear of one of the most successful owners in all of Major League Baseball. Never mind a businessman before that as Jim Crane if they didn't. So, you know, I'm fine with that. The more concerning thing for me is, is Jim Crane did say, don't anticipate us doing anything until the new year with the general manager. But he elevated two other guys to assistant general managers. I think by count, they have three or four now of those. So if he's planning on everybody just kind of sticking with what they do in an elevated role, whether it be analytics, this, that, or the other thing, and he's going to make the final shot calls uh, between now and the new year, that's where I kind of worry a little bit because you have a ton of decisions to make between now and the beginning of the new year. Now, I know here in recent year, years, we've seen a lot of these high-priced veteran ball players wait until the last second to sign deals, and that makes everybody uncomfortable. But when you're talking about an ace, when you're talking about one of the most important defensive positions in the field at first base in Yuli, when you're talking about a center field gap that you haven't filled with any routine uh, consistency since George Springer left, and you have no clue what you're going to do in left field without Michael Brantley, and they know they don't want to put Jordan Alvarez out there every single day. You have a lot of decisions to make. Yeah, and the guys that are, I think, doing what they're doing right now with the Astros, as far as the front office moves, are Bill Ferkus and Charles Cook, who were promoted within the organization, you'd assume are incredibly instrumental in these decisions and maybe the potential new GM. So it, it might not be not the GM that's making the decisions. It could be the future GM. And Crane says he's working on Verlander and he wants to bring Yuli back, which to me is a no-brainer. Sean, Yuli's versatility, valuable no matter what. His World Series entry along with his age means he should be relatively cheap. He should be. Um, you know, but what's, what's cheap and what's too cheap? You know, for a guy in Yuli Guriel who is probably looking at himself and saying, well, I'm not taking this nosedive off of a cliff from, you know, a gold glove and a batting title here just two seasons ago. Um, I can get back to that level. 38, you know, yeah, so what if I'm going into my 39 season? I know what I'm worth. And so that might be a little bit more of a harder deal to get done than people think. I would certainly like to have Yuli back. You know, I said this last week, after you win a World Series and you experience this type of success across the board, um, and especially for guys that have been here for a few years now, like Yuli has, you don't ever want to let these guys go because you never know what the future holds. You know the future, too, is going to cost you a little bit of money because they're going to want to get significantly younger at the position and certainly more productive, at least back to that Yuli Guriel 2021 season that he'd had. I guess I'm saying with Yuli, you might be arguing over, you know, you might offer Yuli three or four million dollars a year and somebody might offer him six or seven million dollars a year i just don't think the astros are going to go it's worth losing yuli over two or three million dollars a year 
Crane seems to be very aggressive. And that's why I want to bring this up, too, because Michael Schwab reported uh, some interesting nuggets with Crane and Click. Crane told Click to sign reliever Liam Hendricks in the 2021 offseason, no matter what. The deal was close to the finish line, but Click backtracked uh, at the last second because of cost. Hendricks signed three years, $54 million. Crane wasn't happy about that. That's pretty expensive for a reliever, even more so than Montero. Of course, Hendricks turned out to be an all-star the last two seasons. Then there's the Starling Marte case, who Click almost signed. The interest was mutual with Marte's people. Click backed out because of his age and PED use. I had forgotten about the PED use, but Crane wasn't ready to pay for Marte. Click obviously won him, and that leads to Jake Myers, which Click was a Myers guy. Others in the organization, like Pedro Leon, Crane asked Click if he'd bet his career on Myers. Click said yes. It's true that Myers' injury played a huge role this year and how he performed, but Sean, I'm personally convinced Myers will never be a good enough contact hitter after looking at his minor league history and seeing what I've seen of Jake Myers. And the last one, Sean, is that Urquidy for Contreras trade. And according to Schwab sources, this is very interesting. Crane was told by somebody high in the Astros organization, which I'm wondering why that person didn't talk with James Click, that Contreras would be bad for the clubhouse. So that's why Crane nixed the deal. And I think that was the concern also with Dusty Baker. So, you know, a lot of these decisions are Crane's like not scared of money. It's just, I just don't think Crane likes the long-term contract money. That's what scares him. Yeah. There's a little bit to unpack there. Um, in regards to that last deal that you mentioned with Urquidy and Contreras, you know, that was documented already. I believe in the Passon piece or the Rosenthal piece, one of those guys um, right after the world series that Baker was actually the one um, who kind of went to Crane to squash that deal because Urquidy was one of their best pitchers going at that point in time. And then two, Contreras, a contract year, he was going to come in and expect to play every day. Um, and that's wasn't the role that the Astros at that point in time were ready to fill uh, with a guy like that. So one of the most important things in everything that you just said, and really that piece that I'm talking about that came out after the World Series too, that many probably gloss over. It's more about the deals that never happened versus the ones that did. Because with, with an owner like Jim Crane, who it should be no surprise, like I said it last week, um, a week and a half ago, right after the series, Randall McAvoy caught up in the concourse with Jim Crane. And I just, listening to his responses, he doesn't sound like an owner. You know why he doesn't sound like an owner? Because he understands the game of baseball better than most. He played it when most hadn't. And he involves himself to a degree we're not necessarily sure of right now whether it's going to be greatly beneficial to the Astros in the future or potentially detrimental to the Astros in the future. But I will say this, he involves himself into the everyday workings and the construction of this roster and can name players in their positions in which most owners wouldn't even go there. They wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole, defer to the general manager, the baseball president of baseball operations. This guy knows his stuff. Okay. And so having said that, I think, you know, for a guy to be in a position of making key moves after you're winning a World Series, you have to be able to fully trust his decision making. 
And he said it himself in that piece that Crane was interviewed for that I or I am no, it was actually James Click that said this. James Click said Crane's a much more aggressive style while I'm much more deliberate. And I think that is something that people just kind of gloss over. And if that is certainly the case, the guy that got fired or at least not brought back is the one that said that. The writing was on the wall in that those personality differences make the difference between a win and a loss at the end of the day. Make the difference between you being, you know, capstrung or not across the board. And so I think Jim Crane going forward has to find that guy that he fully trusts. And I think that's why he offered Click the one-year deal. There was a small chance that he takes that deal. And if he did, well, I think we have the answer to exactly the structure that we're seeing, um, you know, that we that really has taken place over the course of the last three years. It's been by committee, not just really one guy. Jim Crane is much more a by committee guy with this personnel that he put together, as he mentioned just a couple of days ago, in a flash, red alert time. I had to get somebody in the building. I know I can play baseball with a manager. I can't play baseball without a manager and just the general manager. That explains why he brought Dusty Baker in initially and then hired the GM. He already trusted the people he had in-house, and he trusted his ability to make certain moves that needed to be made if, in fact, he couldn't get the right guy in or at least a guy in at that point in time. It might be a helpful thing to have a James Click that thinks differently than Crane and Dusty and the yin and the yang of it all. And, you know, Dusty might not have liked the debates, but sometimes debates are good for the best decision, Sean. Yes, yes. Not saying you need a yes man by any stretch, because that's the last thing you really want. I mean, I'll take I'll take a, an aggressive type of style um, that's even more deliberate. It could be the wrong decision. Go go to Astro Ball. Go back and read that book. That book talked about Jeff Luno and how he liked having guys in the room that were disagreeing with him when yes. it came down to personnel and draft decisions. He 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 yes. liked that. It was a big deal for him. Hundred percent. But to be able to do that, okay, it's not the title doesn't give you the. Uh, ability, the right to do that. The, the the actual human being sitting in that room across the table from you gives you that freedom to do that. There has to be a trust factor there. There has to be that relationship there where you're not afraid to stand up on the table and say, no, this is what I think. This is what we need to do. Now, if you see otherwise, then convince me, you know, I'm willing to listen. You know, just as much as you're willing to stand up on a table and give your piece and say why you're right and this is what we should do, you have to be willing to sit back down in that chair and listen to it as well from somebody else. And so finding the right people um, is is really kind of what it comes down to. And so I was encouraged um, when I read the piece um, and the quotes from Jim Crane saying that, hey, you know, we're not going to do anything. I'm going to take my time with this and we're, we're not in red alert mode, really. Um and I think you're not because we're talking about relationships here, Robert, the one that he does have with Justin Verlander and not saying that's going to be the end all be all decision. But I mean, that is one of the, if not the biggest decision you're having to make at this point in time because of the monies allocated to him potentially. Whereas if you don't have to pay him, that frees up a lot of room to take care of some other positions of need like first center, left catcher, bullpen, 
um, and some other big time decisions that need to be made, maybe even coming from the starting rotation. You never know how aggressive this team's going to be. But because you trust Crane as a baseball mind and he obviously trusts good baseball people around him, that's why I don't think it's red alert time. Yeah, the Verlander decision and this Montero decision to me are both interesting because, you know, as good as Montero has pitched, he's 32 years old. We know the history of relievers many times you know, they'll have a good year and then they fall off a cliff or, you know, it's very volatile. He's got no history also. However, you know, the, the Astros saw a lot in Montero. They figured they could get something out of him. This is something that I'm sure it just wasn't click that was uh, looking at Montero as somebody that could be a good answer for the Astros. The thing about Verlander is, and, and Montero together, is both of them, don't seem necessary because you've got so many guys in the bullpen that are signed for next year. You have so many starters that are ready to go. So how badly do you need them? And when you're, when you've got guys that are working for cheap, as opposed to Verlander on Montero, that's typically gives you, if something happens injury wise or something at the trade deadline, Sean, that gives you the flexibility. You know, if you don't want to jump way over your, uh, your luxury tax issues, it gives you that flexibility to do stuff. Yeah, certainly. Um, look, I'm, I'm just not as hesitant uh, really about the age of Montero, more so just the money, because now you have two of the higher paid relievers in your bullpen right now and Ryan Presley and Montero. Um, and I would say at this point in time, you know what, again, if they're not hamstringing you to do other moves, then they're absolutely worth it. I mean, Presley's invaluable um, role as a closer in this pen is just that. I mean, look at what he accomplished this postseason with the Houston Astros, just this regular season. Uh, it was a fantastic year for Ryan Presley. Um, and so if I hear the word Ryan Stressley one more time, I'm going to go berserk on somebody, but because I mean, just trust it already. But I, I get what you're saying. Um, I, I just think that it, if, well, I go back to what I mentioned earlier. Like, if you're going to trust this organization, this front office, this analytics department, scouting department to identify and bring in talent, you have to be able to trust their decision making to keep them. And if 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 it's at a premium, then so be it. Thirty two is nothing, really. I mean, I get the history with relievers, but what's the history of you know older relievers leaving the Houston Astros? That's what I'd be more uh, interested in um, versus the older relievers staying with and continuing success with the Houston Astros. Um, I think that is something that we're kind of entering into, and that's going to be an interesting follow. Well, let's let me throw this at you. Speaking of the bullpen, I made a big deal about how Click built the Astros bullpen, but it was a mistake not to give Dusty credit. Over Dusty's managerial career, He's taken 24 relievers and lowered the ERA from one to three runs, including Stanek and Montero. This is from a piece that I read on Deadspin. In 2008, the Reds' bullpen was 27th in baseball. Dusty took it, and he made it fourth the next season. It was first by 2012. This is a long history for Dusty on this. What's also amazing is how most of Dusty's relievers' ERA shot back up when he was no longer their managers. Dusty's pitchers have less walks and they give up fewer home runs. And for that reason, it shouldn't be a surprise that Dusty had so much confidence in Abreu and so little 
and Ryan Stanek. Think about that. Also, Sean, it's also worth noting that Dusty's defenses are always near the top of the league, which is why Maldi and Yuli were playing over Vasquez and Mancini. I want to know what's attributed to that, though. I mean, that, that would be a fantastic question and discussion to have with Dusty Baker is if you gave him those numbers and that long history going all the way back to his time with the Cincinnati Reds, which I think he'd spent, what, five, six years there with the Reds, dating from 2009 to 2013, 2014, something like that. Um, I, I'd want to know what he thinks is the reason for that. What did you do? How did you do it? Um, what went in there? Because for a guy, presumably, at that point in time, we're talking – 13, 14 years ago now, how involved in any kind of analytics was Dusty Baker? And who were his pitching coaches? Right here. It's here. It's the brain. Dusty's instincts, his ability to work with people, his ability to know when a guy looks like he's in trouble. If there's one thing that we've learned from Dusty, beyond everything else, nobody knows human beings better than Dusty Baker. And I love that answer. And I think that's probably the majority of it. Um, But there's there is also a baseball side uh, to Dusty that I would really like to ask him about in 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 that history and those numbers. And, yeah, the people that he had, the players that he'd had on those teams, um, but also the position coaches um, that he had beside him, you know, how much they factor in, because we haven't we haven't mentioned this yet. I mean, holy smokes, Joe Espada returning as bench coach to the Houston Astros. Are you serious right now? Like, thanks, the other 31, or the other 29, rather. Do you think Crane might have shelled out a little? I think that could have happened. And just remember this. It was Joe Espada who made sure Trey Mancini hugged the first baseline in Game 5, which is why he made that play in the World Series. Sure. That's, that's what great baseball minds do that's how you get to become a manager maybe he helps make the point that you just made with dusty baker um because you've been around so long you understand situations you can almost you can see them before they happen you're thinking you know three four five pitches at bats uh away do you think crane under the table has told joe espada you know at some point dusty might call it quits and you're you're in line for that that job or do you do you do do you do something like that if you're Joe Espada? Why not? If you've got a hot commodity coach in your building already and has interviewed with countless other teams, I mean, why not? I mean, you know, I haven't thought about this, but for just a millisecond right now since you brought this up. But I mean, look at the NFL version of maybe what we're talking about here. Who's been the hottest commodity that has not been a head coach yet, that has been bandied about over the course of the last two, three, four seasons, looking for a job since Patrick Mahomes came in uh, to quarterback the Kansas City Chiefs. Eric Bieniemy, the guy's gone. Interview after interview after interview. And some of what I've heard is just the simple fact that, you know what, he sucks at interviews. He stinks at it. For whatever reason, I don't know why. You know, made a bad impression with the Houston Texans. Take that for what you will. Um, some things that were said, the way that conversations were had on his part, it just didn't sit well with the McNairs. Um, maybe Joe Espada sucks as an interview. I don't know. But one thing I do know is that he's damn good at his job in his role as a bench coach. And if Jim Crane foresees a manager in front of his name in the future, 
And sure, why not? Because, yeah, Dusty's not going to be here forever. He got a one-year deal. And I think if you read between the lines a little bit during that press conference last week when they announced it, I think in large part that was probably Dusty's decision. If Dusty wanted a one-and-one, he probably could have gotten it. If Dusty wanted a flat-out two-year deal, he probably could have gotten it. Um, and I, I, I think, yeah, Joe Espada should be in the plans, but you're also willing to lose a guy, you know, to another ball club. If it means he's fulfilling his dream, Joe Espada wants to be a manager. You don't go on an interview if you don't want the job. And he's gone on countless, uh, interviews for managerial positions and just quite simply hasn't gotten it for one reason or the other. Um, and so I, I think you continue, continuously have to plan for, um, the guys that you do have right now, one day not being here, and Crane's probably got some other guys in mind right now. You have a list of everybody. If you're a good businessman, I think, and there's so much going on all the time in baseball from your farm system, analytics, all these kinds of departments and personnel and Rule 5 drafts and Super 2s and all this stuff, you got to be organized. And you have to have lists. I guarantee you Jim Crane has probably a top five list of every possible key position in that front office and on this team possible. Whereas if they were gone tomorrow, he knows who to call first. Yeah. Aza Campo was probably the biggest loss of the Astros. If you ask me uh, of this past year, um, we're, we're going to talk more Astros coming up next week. I mean, there's going to be more stuff that's happening, I'm sure. But before we finish off the show, let's go to the Texans quick heads up to check out our live Texans post game shows shows every week. Sean goes into the locker room for home games. So this week, a live show is going to be, at about 5 p.m., right, Sean? Roughly somewhere in that neighborhood? Yeah, yeah, probably about 5. And if you miss it, look for our live shows anytime under the live tab on our YouTube page. If you're listening on a podcast app, I put the live shows up as quickly as I can. And, Sean, what's been the talk around the Texans' locker room this week? I haven't been much talk around the Texans' locker room because nobody's really talking, <laughs> to be quite <laughs> honest with you. Well, in yesterday's show, I, the, the big story that I saw this week is in yesterday's show, I, I was talking with our NFL expert, Andy Rio. We talked a bit about the signing of Cardinal running back Eno Benjamin off the way, off waiver wires. And since then, Sean, it was a report that he got in an argument with the Cardinal assistant coach because he barely played when James Conner came back from an injury. Benjamin's agent, Drew Rosenhaus, said he was not aware of that. But frankly, I mean, if it's him getting into an argument with an assistant coach, I, I don't care because he wants to play. That 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 shows to me like a guy that wants to be out there. So that doesn't bother me. The big thing about Eno Benjamin, though, is the Texans, you know, they desperately need somebody to to run a little bit instead of Damian Pierce. And I know Burkhead's been the guy, but we want to see somebody with an actual future, like next year and the year beyond. And the other part is if you get that guy and you can sign him maybe before the contract runs out at the end of the year, you don't have to draft him. You don't have to worry about it in free agency. It's one less thing that you've got to worry about. Put money towards, think about going into the offseason. And this guy got 4.3 yards of carry and is breaking tackles left and right. More, more Better uh, tackle percentage uh, or breaking tackles more than, than Brees Hall, one of the best running backs in the NFL this year before he got hurt. You know, Benjamin could, needs to be on a football field somewhere. Um, unfortunately, you know, as little as they run the football in Arizona, if he was complaining about playing time there, uh, just give it a week around here. Um, because if you buy into anything that Lovey Smith and Pep Hamilton are saying, the carries aren't going anywhere for Damian Pierce. You know, they'll go back to that first three weeks, four weeks of questioning where we were like, hey, why aren't you giving this dude the ball? 
But what about Rex Burkhead? Is that, could carries go anywhere for Rex Burkhead? That's my question. The point that I was really going to make is I think it's less about carries going away from Damian Pierce, and it's more of an indictment on Rex Burkhead and Daria Gumbawale. Um, that's why you bring Eno Benjamin. I mean, we just saw this week they let uh, Isaac Yadam go, um, who in large part was just brought in as a special teams guy, not really to play any corner or nickel or anything like that. It was just special teams, but they let him go. You know, a former third-round pick by the Broncos. And, you know, I, I don't think it's out of the question if, in fact, you know, Dari could be one of those guys if they really like, you know, Benjamin a lot. Um, I don't think you part ways with Rex Burkhead because Damian Pierce has talked extremely highly of him and a lot of other players have as well about the mentor that Rex has been to Damian. Um, Danny Barrett um, spoke at length about that a few weeks ago, the relationship that all three of those guys have and how Damian's benefited from that. So I don't think Rex goes anywhere, but the carries for him, yes, the 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 unfortunate thing is we would probably have seen a little bit more of Rex and of Daria Gumbawale, and we might see more of Eno Benjamin later in games if, in fact, the Texans weren't um, in the midst of losing absolute control of every single one of these games in the fourth quarter and playing catch-up and having to throw the ball more instead of run and stick to a game plan. That's the very difficult thing. Now, maybe to keep Pierce a little bit more fresher for later in the game, um, because he is a threat as a pass catcher, um, and the the chunk of yardage that he's able to gain on runs, you can run the ball when you know it says analytically that you're supposed to pass because the guy just gets yards. He's just as good as throwing a check down to Rex Burkett on third and long as it would be to run Pierce on a third and short. Um, you know, another passing situation. So I think that's going to be an interesting follow. I just don't think Pierce's carries really uh, go anywhere. I think they're probably going to stay in and around 26, 27, 28 carries for here on out. Eno can catch the ball too. Uh, he did that quite a bit. He was a kick returner for them. That's how much they trusted his hands uh, and his ability to do things with the Cardinals. Um, the whole thing with, you know, him getting in, in the argument with the coach, I thought this was really funny. Sean, I was doing a little Google searching and I found a tweet from Benjamin back in 2016. You're going to love this. He tweeted, quote, actions speak louder than arguments, unquote. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That was from 2016. That was like six years ago. So all comes full circle, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. It it feels like maybe he's he's gone through that a little bit. Um, Yeah. Yeah. This might be the last chance the Texans have to win. You know, I talked about a little bit with Andy. It might be the next, the last chance in the next few weeks. Uh, they're on a short week, six day, um, six days for them with the Monday Night Football game. Maybe a little high on themselves after beating the Eagles. So the the, the Texans might have a shot because after this, it's Patrick. Mah- you know, the, the quarterbacks they're facing are Mahomes, Burkhead, Deshaun Watson. You know, it's it, it's going to be a rough stretch coming up, and 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 of course, uh, Tua the week after. That's the thing. You know, they just got done with this gauntlet of running backs that they were facing. Going back to that uh, Raiders game with Josh Jacobs, you saw Derrick Henry, you saw Miles Sanders, you saw Saquon Barkley, and all of them had the best day, if not or one of the best, if not the best days uh, that they had in a season. And for Derrick Henry, certainly one of the best days that he'd had in a career. Uh, in the NFL, 
And now you, you mentioned it. I mean, you're going to look at Tua. You've got Deshaun. You've got uh, Dak. You've got um, uh, Patrick Mahomes. And you finish with the Titans, Jags, and Colts. Yeah, automatic wins. We got automatic wins coming up. We can beat the Colts. We almost beat them. We we could beat the J- Well, whatever. Who cares? You probably got two more games winnable after the Commanders game on Sunday. Sean, I am going to talk. So people are not in total depression mode. I am going to talk with an NFL draft expert on Friday. I, will, I am going to post it Monday. We're going to talk about the quarterbacks in this draft. So stay tuned for that. For you Rockets fans. Oh, yeah, we're going to talk with Frank again this week. Uh, and and I should have that up by 24 hours from now um, about what's going on with the Rockets. So stay tuned for that. Me and Sean are going to be back. And we do a lot of discussion about this Texan stuff and what's going on with them during the postgame. Please, please go listen to the postgame. I think you're you're going to you, you'll you, you'll enjoy it if you haven't listened to one of our postgame shows. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Sean. We will talk again on Sunday. Can't wait. Texans and Commanders post game. Uh, you know, let's get it this time. Let's get let's get a win. Maybe, maybe. Looking forward to it. Ron Rivera, by the way, looking for his fifth straight win over Lovey Smith. When those two guys go head to head, as I don't believe the hatchet has necessarily been buried between those two yet. So that should be an interesting little handshake after the game. Sounds good. We'll talk again soon, man. Yes, sir. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, you can support the show by subscribing on YouTube and commenting on the videos. Listen to Houston Sports Talk on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and Google. Don't forget to tell a friend and share our show on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.